Welcome. You are listening to Conversations from Christ Church Cranbrook. We are a faith community located in Metro Detroit who have been transformed by God's acceptance, love, and grace. Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith today, we pray this podcast will feed your soul and inspire your spirit. All right, we're going to get started because it's time to start. And um, as you know, this is one of those things that gets put out uh, through the ether. And so um, we don't have a uh, large audience, but it tends to reach a large audience. So thank you all for being a little bit like when we used to watch sitcoms in the 1980s. And we'd say that, you know, Cheers is filmed before a live studio audience. So I'm going to be relying upon you all to engage a little bit and to uh, provide the kind of feedback that someone at home might have. And then we also have um, ability for people, those of you who are watching at home, if you send us um, your questions or comments through the Church at Home portal, we'll answer those as well in case you're on there. So. As you know, we've been engaging in this, um, this class on thriving, and one of the ways in which we've been thinking through uh, thriving is that it's distinct from survival. When we survive, things get better. When we thrive, we get better. And that thriving happens when we get to a point where we're surviving, but then we begin to do things that actually help us enter a kind of new dimension of being. And um, one of those practices that Bell in his book advocates for is resilience. Now, I want to be completely upfront with you. Um, this was like the smallest chapter in the book. <laughs> and um, so I did some uh, other research to answer this question, what is resilience? Because, uh, and I drew from two uh, major books uh, one is from a psychologist who's based at Loyola University named uh, Wick, and his uh, book is called Bounce. And then I also drew from another psychologist named uh, Bessel van, van der Kirk, Kulk, uh, which is a, a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And then, of course, I drew from the Bible because that happens to be a field of expertise for me. And that was something that I think probably helps us think through this. And, um, and I also incorporate some of the insights that Bell had about resilience. So I want to begin by just asking a question. What is resilience? Yeah, sure. Michael, and then Mary. Um, to me, resilience is the ability to persevere and uh, bounce back after uh, something that's traumatic. Beautiful. Mary. Bounce back, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah. To bounce back, I mean, I kind of fed that to you and I said the word bounce, right? Well, one person that was writing sometime in the early 2000s um, actually had um, um, this observation that we tend to think about resilience as a kind of individual character trait or virtue. So the spring inside of you that allows you to bounce back from an, uh, a difficult journey or the ability to find yourself through a difficult path. And that's seen as kind of a lonely kind of way of going in which you 
um, don't really know where to go and you're hoping to find your way. And this picture of a mountaineer um, uh, trying to get through the fog on a mountain is perhaps uh, kind of speaks to that answer about resilience. But I want to suggest to you that resilience is just as much relational as it is personal. And that's going to be one of the burdens I'm going to have today. And of course, um, you can actually see resilience that is a kind of communal virtue, not only in the ability of a community to pivot, but being immersed in a community actually aids resiliency, is my basic point today. And an image that I had when I was thinking about this is actually from Rembrandt uh, Van Roon. Uh, this was done sometime in the late 1650s. And this is uh, the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law, which happens in uh, the Gospel of Mark. And what I love about this, as much as that mountaineer, you know, that mountain, that mountain climber making his way through the fog, um, I love this, just this sketch, because you see this incredible connection and empathy, and she is holding on to Christ for dear life, and she's going to get up. So resilience, I want to suggest, is as much a um, relational quality as it is a personal quality. We need communities to help us be resilient, which is why we need good communities that are not toxic or that are not exploitative. We need good fostering communities. And then I would like to suggest that this also comes um, internal to the scriptures. Uh, this is from 2 Corinthians 4, 5 to 7, and this is um, actually one of the earliest pieces of scripture that we have. First and Second Corinthians um, were basically like sermon notes that Paul left someplace that were collected, um, and Paul was preaching in the, 19, in the uh, early 50s. Um, even before we had Gospels. And this is what he wrote. For we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. Now that is a major statement of relationship, not about a personal quality, but a kind of state of being in relationship with God. And look at how it finishes. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. 
So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, one of the things that I would add to this, just to give it a little more of a religious emphasis before I turn and rely heavily on good insights by psychologists, is for Paul, the death of Christ is not just a historical event. It's a way through which reality itself was changed. And so Christ is always already present as the crucified Christ. And Easter Sunday, or Easter Day, does not absolve or diminish that cross in any way. But Christ is always present in his suffering, in the humiliation, in the humanity of Christ. All of that is always already ours. So that's a little bit of what Paul's saying when he says we have the death of Christ in us. At the same time, Christ's resurrection is equally present as well. The life of Christ is in us as well. The power of Christ, the resurrection of Christ is in us at the same time and in the same way. Christ is as present through the resurrection as Christ is present through the cross and death. And so you have this whole kind of movement that the way in which we find ourselves in relationship with God and Christ is to see ourselves enveloped both in death and resurrection. And this is helpful because one of the complaints I have is, you know, why didn't God make it a better world? Like, <laughs> why did we not have the struggle and suffering, the broken relationships, all the things that bring us down? Why do we have this? Couldn't, I mean, God, use your imagination. You're God. Couldn't you have made life equally satisfying without any of those things? Well, yes. Uh, but in God's wisdom, God chose to transform those things rather than to banish them from existence. And that's a little bit of what, what happens to us when we learn resilience. So one definition of resilience that I draw from, which is from Edith Grotberg, she wrote this early in the, 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 the New Millennium. Resilience is the human capacity to deal with, overcome, learn from, or even be transformed by the inevitable adversities of life. I love this definition because it has a whole idea of adversities that are inevitable. You will always experience struggle. You're always going to experience difficulty. That dream that you have of moving to the coast and escaping everything that's bothering you, it is a sheer myth. Let it die. Let it die. I spend all my time on Zillow in the Pacific Northwest. And I think, you know, when I finally get to rest, this is where I'm going to go. I'm going to paddle, a kayak, I'm going to do things I've never done in my life. I won't have any of these troubles. It's escapism, right? Life will be a struggle no matter where you go. And uh, it doesn't matter how much material wealth you collect around yourself. In fact, sometimes that's the biggest problem is when you have a lot of money, you actually are kind of buffered from actually um, experiencing the consequences of your actions, right? So adversities are inevitable. Broken relationships are inevitable. 
Disappointment, disillusionment, these are inevitable. But resilience is this human capacity to deal with, overcome, learn from, and even be transformed by these adversities. That's what makes it special. And um, the, adverse, the adversity, I just thought, um, you know, in the kind of when, when I'm summarizing the literature, these are the three that they tend to pick up. There's toxic rather than creative stress. Um, there's some stress that's really, really good for you. Um, it's true. Having a little bit of stress, like a busy day at the salon, right? Or when you're waiting for like a color job to come out and you're thinking, this will be interesting, right? That's, a, that's creative stress. That's a good thing that helps us. Or like when you get up to preach a sermon, like, whew, am I really going to go there? <laughs> right? Are they going to hear it? That's creative stress. That's, that's good. Toxic stress is when it's eating you alive. Uh, one of my, fa- one of the people I grew up with, uh, I won't give you his full name, but he was, um, he was so brilliant. Uh, went to Yale undergrad and Harvard Law School, and suddenly his job started to eat him alive. And he tried every trick in the book. He, at one point, had his loafers off in the office, and he was making fists with his feet, and he was lying down, and he was trying his best to manage it. And what he realized, I'm not a lawyer. And so he went to medical school. And now is an emergency room doctor. Can you think of a more stressful <laughs> field? But that's an example that there's creative stress. That's fine. There's toxic stress that eats you alive, that keeps you from being who you believe God has called you to be. The second is burnout, um, which I, (laughs) there's, so burnout was really big in the 80s, and there were lots of books written on it. And so, and then finally someone said, do you you know what that means? And like, no one knew. Um, And, um, but basically what they mean is cynicism, workaholism, isolation, boredom, depletion, conflict, arrogance, helplessness, avoidance. Now, that's a laundry list, but you can see a kind of theme through them all with burnout. And the problem with burnout, again, and I'm not, I mean, I'm one of those people when they say workaholic, I'm one of those people who gets a little defensive, right? Because I never have a day off, ever. Um, But a workaholic kind of relationship with your work is one in which your expectations aren't meeting reality, you're not getting the affirmation you need, you're going through a lot of uh, mazes, but no cheese. And so it's not, again, it's not so much about how much you're working, it's whether or not you're getting recognized, it's whether or not you're being valued, it's whether or not you're being lifted up. These are things that need to be addressed. And oftentimes when those things don't happen, that's when burnout um, sets in. Now, we all have questions we have to ask ourselves about our need to work. It's a cultural thing. It's fine, but it is something we have to think about. And um, that's one of the things that can cause adversity. And then finally, as we've been saying a lot, there's trauma. And it's either trauma that happened in the past um, or trauma that happened in the present, something that you've experienced recently. The one thing I should have put up there, which I forgot to, was there's also primary and secondary trauma. 
Um, particularly if you're a caregiver and you're experiencing trauma that's happening in your community, you have to be aware that you get traumatized as much as the people who are going through the horrible death, the horrible injury, or the great dissolution of their life. And so that, um, that secondary trauma is just as real as primary trauma. And then the final thing I would say is there's simple and complex trauma. And complex trauma within the psychological literature means that if you were raised in a home in which there was abuse or neglect or alcoholism or all of the above, if you were able to kind of hit every one of those apples on the lottery, um, you have many different points of trauma and triggering that happens. And it continues to affect you no matter what. And so you have to figure out how to go through those things. And all of these things are what was meant by adversity. So um, no matter the adversity, no matter its form, resilience seems to have two components. And the first is, um, and this is from Robert Wicks, Bounce, uh, unbelievable. He said the first is um, you develop an inner or interior life where non-judgmental self-awareness, simplicity, freedom, and truth flourish in a psychological or spiritual place, one might say space, in which deeply felt healthy needs are experienced and addressed. So what Wicks is arguing, to put it another way and say it differently, is that the way we manage ourselves in resilience, one part of it, is to begin to create that inner space. We begin to in, uh, develop that sense of self and that sense of being that helps us to manage adversity. And one of the things that Wix does, and I think it's important for me to just mention it to you, uh, hopefully it figures in, is Wix's main concern in the book Bounce is for the trauma ahead of you, not the trauma behind you, because his main concern was to write a book for therapists who were experiencing secondary trauma. And so Wix spends a lot of time talking about the different practices one can do to engage in self-care. And that um, has a kind of progression to it um, that you can see. Um, I'm gonna get to it in a second. I don't mean to bait and switch, but the hope of developing this interior life where there's a safe spiritual space inside of you is that it allows you to somehow manage a lot of things. And it allows you to, to establish a feeling of permanence and a civilization of transience, um, silence in the midst of noise, gratitude in the face of greed, contemplation amid cease, ceaseless action and agitation, communication in a culture obsessed with entertainment and sensationalism, peace amidst outbursts of violence, quality instead of just quantity, and warmth when everything is rationalized or computerized. And then belonging rather than merely being part of the crowd, slowness in a culture of increasing velocity, truth when words are distorted in political speeches and in some religious discourses, transparency in a culture that rewards secrecy, flexibility in a culture that rewards rigidity, humility in a culture that rewards grandiosity. All of these things Wicks believes um, 
are brought into being with some good self-care, some good resilience. And um, what he um, (laughs) argues for is there's a kind of simple way to start to be resilient. This sounds, I feel like your mother when I do this, but I have to tell you, it's so true. Um, Adequate sleep, sleep, healthy eating, regular exercise, time to rest, recover and recreate, and pacing yourself are important. Now, in this case, I'm completely guilty because I have a problem when the clocks change at church. I go through crisis and I wake up at 3 a.m., which I did today because I am nervous, right? And it's just a thing. I, maybe this is not the best moment for me to lecture you about adequate sleep. But what I can tell you is um, <laughs> when I was a dean of a university and, and undergraduates would come into my office and they'd be like, I've got to drop out. I'm so far behind or I am going through such a crisis, I, I don't know what to do with this and that. The first question I would ask them, tell me about your sleep. Because first time they're away from home, they stay all up all night, it's like the beginning, it's the cascade of everything. So that's the simple things. So if anything that helps you, go home and have this little to-do list, have yourself a meal, take a nap, go for a walk, um, and, and yet, there are more things. There are some uh, keys, so Wick says, to um, ba- maintaining psychological stability and emotional sobriety. And I like this term, emotional sobriety. Um, that's a really key term for both people in recovery movements, but also for anybody who is um, kind of addicted to the drama that happens in our lives. We want that kind of, that's the thing that keeps us going, right? Um, it's the, you get, you get a little bit tired when you don't have that kind of adrenaline around you. And one of the things he says is there's a kind of list again he shares of learning to laugh, um, keeping your sense of humor, remembering your values. What is drawing you through this space? Um, I, you know, that's something so key to ask yourself, particularly if you find yourself in different places, having to be different people. Discerning what to hold on to and what to let go of. So that, you know, another way of saying that is there's dynamics of control. Things you can hold on to, things you have to let go of. And it's not always because once you let go of them, um, it's okay if they fall on the ground sometimes. Uh, but, but it's more for your own self-preservation that you do these things. Self-appreciation and self-compassion is really key. Um, balancing engagement and detachment, finding and maintaining social support through friends, mentors, groups, and the church, spontaneity and positivity. Now, these are, again, a nice laundry list, so I thought that I would actually try to summarize it with a story, with a parable. <laughs> so, there was a king who once hated an abbot and wanted to find a way to kill him. But because he was a king and he was at a, um, in a court, 
um, and he had to follow the procedures of the kingdom, he couldn't just kill the abbot. That would have been problematic. And just for your help, I have a picture of the king. This is Henry II, who was a very bad king. And you can see, no one liked this person, not even his portrait painter. Um, so the king came up with this idea because he wants to kill the abbot. He points to a bird which does not have any kind of capacity to speak. It's not a parrot. It's not a cockatiel. And he says, Abbot, you have to teach this bird to talk or it's off with your head. And the abbot says, well, king, that's a difficult task. I need three years. And the king said, done. So the abbot takes the bird, gets back into his carriage, heads back to the abbey. While he's out there and he's hitting the outskirts, his novices come running out, they're in tears. They're like, bishop, I mean, uh, uh, abbot, the, 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 um, the king is going to kill you. And this, by the way, is Thomas Akempis, who was actually killed by a king. So I have the sword there just because... Yes, just a, little, just a little church history as we do it. And um, the abbot says, is that so? To one of his novices. And the novice said, well, of course, the king said he was going to kill you. He said, well, I have three years. In three years, I might die. In three years, the king might die. And in three years, the bird might die. And so that is a parable of resiliency. Because the abbot is showing perfect resilience by leaning into that three years. And um, I picked these, uh, that, that bird, isn't it beautiful? But it's so dead. It's just so dead. <laughs> uh, Resiliency, when you gather all of the things that uh, Wicks was talking about, uh, all of these things kind of come together. It's never, oh, I better you know, laugh today, <laughs> uh, or I better maintain my values, or I better you know, do, um, find my support group. It's all of those things happen at the same time. And that's why I want to be careful when I say these things to you that I understand that um, we all are going to fail a little bit at this. Uh, not, not every day will you get adequate sweet sleep. Not every day will you have a nutritious meal. I just ate two pieces of cake. <laughs> that was my lunch. You get the picture? But what you hope to do with resilience is you try to actually create and maintain this, uh, what psychologists call the window of tolerance which is something that is not so exciting. I should probably stick with birds, but basically what the window of tolerance is, is this part of you that is in place when you have the ability to optimally solve a problem, to be alert, to be engaged, and to be able to access both your emotions and your reasoning. I find that I'm totally in this window of tolerance when I'm like visiting someplace and they need help immediately and I just know exactly what they need. 
It's because I'm not like being triggered. I've not been sucked in. I don't have any hooks in me. I don't have any resentments, you know. But that window of tolerance is something that we have to, to kind of cultivate. And this is what resilience helps us to do. And, you know, when you are dealing with that window of tolerance, you have the um, temptation to shut down, right, from one perspective. And you experience depression, lethargy. You become unmotivated. You become numb. You have no, nothing else to say. And what um, one approach says is that by doing mindfulness meditation, uh, something we've talked about in different times at this class, physical exercise and deep breathing, to which I would add prayer. And I would also say, uh, not to get ahead of myself, don't self-isolate. Uh, taking part in those healthy relationships that give you life. And that can move you back into this window of tolerance. And then, of course, there is that moment in which we get over-anxious. Um, for me, it comes really like Christmas Eve, the last service. After having done it four times, I'm like, I'm not going to sleep for hours. <laughs> I'm just going to be hearing the, 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 the brass, and I'll be sitting here. You're over, you're over anticipating. Or when you're trying to do too much, again, you can't think uh, clearly. You're a little bit emotionally hammered thin. Um, you overreact, you engage in unproductive problem solving. It's a kind of um, things where you're just trying to stay vigilant, actually. I, I, actually, Christmas Eve is not a good example for me because that's usually kind of like my, my runner's high, right? But this is more like when you're in a work environment and you're just constantly being triggered and you're reacting. And you're getting your feelings hurt. Here again, it says for, for, for a lot of psych psychology, it says deep breathing, mindfulness, grounding exercises. For me, spending some time in prayer and spending some time in Christian community is really key. So when I go to step back just a bit to see where resilience falls in, in this incredible um, wheel upon wheel that Bill has done in this class, you see the trigger that normally happens and it's that there you have a kind of step that you could make. You either fall into your old pattern of being the victim or aggressor, or, or you immediately kind of go into that survivor mechanism where you are accepting, aware, you're trying to confront your problems and experiment and try new things, or you can continue to move into this point of resilience. And it's here where self-care has um, its imperative. It's here where that will get you from here to here. Now, I didn't do it for this class, but one of the things about contemplation and self-care and meditation is that is part of it is brain chemistry. So what happens is, is when, when you have experienced unproductive thoughts or you're stuck someplace, it's usually your left hemisphere that is locking onto something and the emotional salience in your brain is the amygdala, which is the little almond that's in the deep part of you, you actually don't have much connection between the left hemisphere and the amygdala, right? That's the, that's, that you can't think your way out of this, right? There's nothing, when someone gives you, and that was one of the things, I, I'm a little nervous with that kind of laundry list that Wix gives, because for me, that's like telling, like, my dad, who was a recovering alcoholic, like, just try to moderate your drinking, 
right? Like that was not what he needed. What you need to activate is the right side of your brain, which does have some kind of connection to that center in you that has your emotional salience, the amygdala, right? So that's why, that's why contemplation, that's why mindfulness, that's why deep breathing, that's why making time to take care of yourself, making time to be in community, that's why it's important. So the three ways to build resilience is um, care for the self, it's relational support and integrity. Um, I like that word integrity, I made it up. Um, but it's not just the relationships that have to be supportive, but they have to have a level of integrity because that's how you get the values you need. And then um, the last thing is to make Christ the center. Um, because we're people of faith and Christianity has the absurd and beautiful belief that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, there is a kind of claim that Christianity makes that having Christ in your life makes all the difference in the world. And um, just to um, say a little bit about each, uh, this is a beautiful quote from Ellen B uh, Baker, who uh, wrote a book called Caring for Ourselves in 2003. This is what she said, and I think this is, I find this really helpful because what I think um, needs to happen with self-care is we often have to experiment. What's gonna work for us now and what's gonna work for us always? And this is what she writes. There are many different ways to practice self-care. No one model exists in terms of definition, meaning, significance, or application. So in other words, everybody's gonna say self-care, but they're all gonna mean something different. It's a little bit like back in the 90s in South Africa, everybody talked about truth and reconciliation. They all meant something completely different when they said those words. Differences between individuals relate to personal history, gender, and personality and within individual differences relate to developmental stage or changing needs, such differences influence the substance and process of self-care. So who you are and what's gonna work for you is gonna be different. For one person at a particular stage of life, self-care might involve maintaining a very active schedule and hiring a housekeeper. Now that's a little privileged, but we all can relate to this. For another person or for the same person at a different stage, self-care might involve considerable amounts of quiet, uncommitted personal time and tending one's own home. The experience, for example, of planting your own garden is something that I cannot relax in, <laughs> right? Yes. Because I did it when I was 18, my parents um, employed me to do an incredible amount of lawn work. And when I mean lawn work, I mean not like cutting the grass. I like refooded the house, right? Like I did, I did a ditch and we put in concrete around the entire house. It took us an entire summer. And so when I got a little money, I said, declare never again. <laughs> I need to take at least three decades away from doing that because I felt like I lost everything that summer. Um, but for other people, working in the garden is unbelievable. It's fun, it's therapeutic, it gives you life, and it's a good thing. 
Um, to say a little bit about relational support and integrity, this is um, from Henry Nouwen. I uh, thought I'd pick up on him. We can take a lot of physical and even mental pain when we know that it truly makes us part of the life we live together in the world. But when we feel cut off from the human family, we qu quickly lose heart. That's such a powerful, incredible quote because it ties resilience to community in a way some people in the psychological literature tend not to do, but it's key. Another person is um, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, and this is what he wrote. I think this is such key. Studies conducted during World War II in England showed that children who lived in London during the Blitz and were sent away to the countryside for protection against German bombing raids fared much worse than the children who remained with their parents and endured nights in the bomb shelters in frightening images of destroyed buildings and dead people. Isn't that an amazing finding? That actually facing danger in your family was better than actually going out to the countryside and experiencing safety. And this is what he concludes, traumatized human beings recover in the context of relationships with families, loved ones, AA meetings, veterans organizations, religious communities, or professional therapists. The role of those relationships is to provide physical and emotional safety, including safety from feeling shamed, admonished, or judged, and to bolster the courage to tolerate, face, and process the reality of what has happened. So that's a key um, passage as well about relational integrity. And finally, for Christians, resilience happens when Christ is the center of our lives. And it's here that we go back to that theme that Paul did in uh, 2 Corinthians. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So, I have three questions. How do you practice self-care? I'm truly curious. I want to know what works for you. For me, going to the gym every morning is my self-care. Not the same for Pastor Manisha. Although you do, you actually exercise every day on your treadmill. And, um, what? <laughs> well, I... <laughs> Sorry. Let me just climb out of that hole. Um, what forms of relational support and integrity do you rely on? And how can you better place Christ at the center of your life? practice self-care in uh, numerous ways. I attend um, regular support groups um, and from that I share my experience with uh, men at a treatment center in Pontiac uh, who have a lot of suffering which also keeps me humble. Um, 
and it connects the suffering I experienced by sharing that. It puts it on a level of playing field. Um, it often keeps my life in perspective so that my self-centered wants are taken away from where being God-centered, it gives me a whole flexible perspective to deal with life as life comes, where when I was self-centered, I was very rigid, tunnel vision, and wasn't open. Um, and letting go of that, um, through that, um, letting that develop, God-centered develop, I've been able to be open and flexible to things that come up out of nowhere, and that gives me strength. Um, I also practice martial arts. We do meditation and uh, Tai Chi, which wow. is fantastic. And uh, that's been an integral part of my life so far. I love what you shared. And one of the things that I wanted to lift up that I probably should have said differently is that there is a kind of way in which service can be liberating, right? And that's part of Christian community. It's not just like, when are my needs going to be met in this? Like, but how can I serve? Margaret. I think sometimes you have to take it day by day. Yeah. And you have to figure out on that day what type of personal care you need. That's beautifully said, right? Is it, is it the day for the bubble bath or is it the day for the hike kind of thing? What about, oops, I'll go back to this other question. I just like that picture. I don't know why. It's so pretty. What forms of relational support and integrity do you rely on? Family, friends, church. And how can you better place Christ at the center of your life? There could be that and then also like the idea of like some practices. But you know what? The biggest impact for me today is seeing actually all of these things as grounded here. You know, the problem with a lot of the language we have in the scriptures is it always seems to float a bit, but it actually has been created for our flourishing. And uh, it's a different way of looking at things, isn't it? Any others? All right, folks, that's our show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations at Christchurch Cranbrook. To learn more about our mission, worship services, and learning opportunities, please visit us at ChristchurchCranbrook.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Christchurch Cranbrook. We look forward to you joining us again, and may God bless you now and always.